Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. Hi, I'm Tom Heisinga. It's the All Songs Considered Plus One podcast. I'm the guy on the NPR music team that usually reports on and writes about classical music of all kinds. And you know, on January 31st, American composer Philip Glass turns 80 years old. To mark the occasion, we asked several of Philip's collaborators and colleagues to pick a piece of his music and write a little bit about it. You can read essays on NPR music by Paul Simon, filmmaker Errol Morris, and composers Nico Muley and David Lang. We also asked Laurie Anderson. She's the performance and visual artist who gave us Oh Superman. And since, she's been making albums, films, multimedia pieces, and writing books. Anderson was active in that blossoming communal art scene in Lower Manhattan in the early 1970s that included all types of artists, musicians, sculptors, dancers, painters, writers, and the experimental, minimalist music of Philip Glass. Laurie Anderson chose to write about Philip Glass's piano etude number 10. And Lori Anderson joins us from her studio in Manhattan. Lori, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for helping us mark the 80th birthday of Philip Glass. Somehow, you know, the idea of Philip Glass turning 80 just doesn't compute for me. It seems to be perennially young somehow. I like the idea of Phil turning 100. (laughs) If if anyone can do it, he can. He's so full of energy. It's unbelievable. I want to ask you about your, your, your history and friendship with Philip Glass, but first let's talk a little bit about this music that you've chosen. And um, it's the etude number 10, the, the solo piano etude. And maybe you can just tell us why you chose this particular piece. I chose that because I was playing it with Phil in some shows. And he said, uh, just make up a violin part that kind of goes along with it, and we'll just do it as a duet. Because we were trying to play each other's music, and... And I thought, that is intimidating. That doesn't need a violin, you know. But, <laughs> but he was very, very generous to me as I tried to work out the parts. And, and I, I never really did work out the parts, but I, I love the piece. And it's so open that you can, there are lots of things that you could do with another instrument to weave in and out of those ideas. So I've tried a lot of those, but never really gotten to the bottom of it, which which is, for me, a really wonderful thing because I, I like things that are just kind of out of my grasp. So when you were playing this with Philip Glass, were you just really kind of riffing on it, or did you actually write out, a, you know, at least a, a skeleton idea of parts of things that you could do in and around the music? A little bit of both. You know, I would I would uh, play what I thought was going to work, and then I realized, ooh, here's another idea, and I would sort of slide over into that court and play that for a while. So I, I did a lot, I tried a lot of different things. I can't say with 100% success. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote for us that you find a calm center in the music, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, because you wouldn't blame some if they if they said, wow, this music seems to move along at a pretty good clip. It does both, but the clip almost is stops the forward motion in a way, you know, because it's looping around on itself in ways that are, I find in ways that my own mind does, and I, I began to listen to Phil's music at the same time I began to 
learn to meditate. So they're forever bound together uh, for me. And also I found that I could listen to Phil's music in a way that I'd never listened to before, which was um, uh, in, a, in a kind of meditative state, I have to say. Not expecting it to, to do giant crescendos and then loop back to the theme, but to be persistently there. I found it completely fascinating and I never heard anything like it before. So I, I went to many, many of those rehearsals in the early 70s and, and, and as many artists did, we would just go and listen to eight farfises at ear bleeding levels and we would lie on the floor and look at the ceiling of these lofts and eight hours later we would just leave. I remember uh, the sculptor Saul LeWitt saying, you know, I do my best work at Phil's rehearsals. Uh, we would just kind of get into a kind of a really wonderful half-dream state of being aware and not aware. I can just kind of see that back in those days. And speaking of kind of persistently there, this piece itself, I like how it starts kind of out of the blue, out of nowhere, as if that tremolo is as if it's kind of been there since the dawn of time or something. <laughs> it's always been playing. You just like uh, open the faucet tap, you know, and there <laughs> it is. Yeah, it doesn't have a like ponderous beginning. It's it's just there it is. Yeah, I love that too about it. And you know what else is interesting? Um, <laughs> how music affects everyone differently. I do also. I agree with you. I find some of Philip Glass's music very meditative, especially um, earlier piano works like Mad Rush in particular. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now this one, this one I always think of as his Gershwin etude somehow. I mean, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. It reminds me of. Um, of a bustling city scene, like maybe Gershwin's American in Paris with, the, with the, the honking car horns. And this piece has that kind of ding, 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 ding kind of a right, right, streetcar right. bell the or whatever. Ding, so. ding goes the trolley. <laughs> You're thinking about a trolley, but uh, yeah, it does, it does bustle along. When you're playing this music, um, does it take you somewhere? If I'm working late at night on my own music now, and especially in the past, I would be working very, very late until I uh, almost started hearing in a different way and became less um, interested in rules and more in just the pure sound. And, and, and that comes from duration, I think. So I feel that sometimes with Pauline Oliveris' music. Um, in which you can let it surround you. I feel it with uh, much of Brian Eno's music. Right. I feel it with Phil's music, that it's very immersive. And, of course, of those three, Phil is the more driving one. He, he's got a propulsive thing. But in a way, it's really just keeping you in place and awake. <laughs> it's not really, when I say driving, you're not going anywhere. ¶¶ 
I listened to so much of Philip's music, especially some of the earlier, more meditative uh, solo piano pieces this year, a lot of Brian Eno's music, a lot of Aphex Twins ambient music in this, mm-hmm. this year, because it's interesting how you were saying that Phil's music especially can be almost like an engine that keeps you going. And for me, I found in these meditative pieces that it was good old-fashioned escapism and kind of washing my mind out from all of the political weirdness that was going on this year. And I felt like I turned to Philip's music just as a way to kind of wipe the slate clean and escape. Yeah, I think escapism has a bad name. You know, it's really... When you say, you know, wipe the slate clean, I think I have the same feeling of like resetting and just being able to find a certain kind of stability. And that means, in a way, uh, learning to to stop because the, the propulsion of the political social scene now is escalated to its warp speed now. You know, everyone's looking at their phone. Uh, The average is supposedly 150 times a a day. Mm. I am a lot more than that. And I'm (laughs) looking for what? Breaking news or some like really horrifying yet new new thing. So we're we're, we're glued to that speed and it's killing people. I mean, my theory on, on this has to do with stories and words, but I think it also has to do with time and speed. And that's that it... You know, we spend a couple of years listening to all the candidates on and on and on and on, tell their stories over and over again about how the world is, how it used to be, what it's going to be, and we're like thinking, okay, I like that story, not that one. Here's another one that's kind of weird, but I like it. And then you vote for the person whose story you like the best. Then the stories get shorter, tweetier, um, (laughs) weirder. You're not really sure where that story came from. And then I think we're just no longer able to analyze this stuff. And is it a is true it story? Is it real? Who wrote this? Why are they doing that? And I think we're collapsing under the weight of our own stories, that it is just too much for people to uh, be constantly uh, analyzing things at that rate and unable to find a reference point. So you're left in a really logical data limbo and it's really distressing to most people I think so music has always been a a way to I I think clear your mind is a good way to put it because there's a lot of stuff going on now that needs your best attention and your clearest mind that you can muster so I think listening to music is a really wonderful way to kind of get back into your body again and going to your comments about the cell phone I think it's also interesting that you wrote about this etude that its elusiveness makes it even more beautiful, which seems to mean that there's a gift of some sort in not knowing things sometimes. And I feel like we are all so obsessed with knowing everything these days, uh, looking up stuff on our cell phones constantly if we can't remember a particular actor in an old movie or whatever. And... um, you know, it's okay not to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure I can do that, but um, I admire your attempt. <laughs> <laughs> um, has this etude or Philip Glass's music in general informed your own art or your own way of, of looking at the world? Oh, I'm sure. 
in, in many ways that I don't really understand. I'm not so good at really analyzing my own work or, or motivation. Uh, as I'm learning from working on my own archive now, which I'm doing a lot because we're putting it, a lot of things together and for a big 15-year project at Mass Mocha, and I'm finding that, you know, I come up with this idea and I think, this is so great, no one ever thought of that. And I look back at my archive and I did that 40 <laughs> years ago. Same idea, exactly. It's, it's really eerie. So I think that the things that uh, inspire you and, and uh, that you make as an artist, sometimes you're not so aware of your own themes even and your own interests until you kind of see them right, right in front of you. Speaking of thinking of the past, do you remember some of your earliest encounters with Philip Glass's music? I think it probably had to do with uh, the restaurant food in Soho. That was the very first restaurant in Soho, and it had to do with a lot of people who were cooking there and eating there. It was a kind of communal thing and uh, sort of spearheaded by the artist Gordon Mata-Clark. And Joanna Colitis, who was Phil's partner at the time, was cooking there. She was a uh, kind of in, in charge of that. So Phil ate there all the time, and so did a, a lot of us. They were mostly sculptors. This is, okay, this is Soho when it was completely dark. You know, no street lights and no stores. There was maybe a, a place called Zelf where you could rent floor polishers, and um, that <laughs> was, uh, we were all doing our loft. So we were, we were, you know, driving pickup trucks, wearing work clothes, and eating at food, and Phil was there, and he was probably working at the same clip as he is now. He was always working and always writing and making making things. And But also at that time, none of us thought that we would ever be professional artists or that anyone would ever pay us for doing any of this. So it was, it was this really crazy, innocent moment. We also believed that we were about to change the world. So we had this like megalomaniacal uh, idea about what we were doing in this so-called crazy downtown scene, which involved sculpture, dance, music, writing, all, all kinds of things. And maybe at that time you could say there was maybe 300 artists in Soho who were uh, uh, in all kinds of things, but probably not more who were hmm. living and working there. It was a really tiny group. And so we all knew each other and we all helped each other too. So if uh, for Phil's rehearsals, if, they, if people needed help carrying amps upstairs, I, I would do that. And you know, it was, it was a very uh, egalitarian time. And, and also, it's easy to forget this, but it wasn't that far from the 60s where it, it was a, a, a culture where uh, there was a, a kind of complete counterculture that didn't really need the official culture. It was very isolated from it. We had our own drugs, our own food, our own music, our own dances, our own clothes, our own everything. The memories of first meeting Philip Glass were probably also in this setting, I take it, and then you ended up doing some collaborations with him over the years. I did, yeah. The um, I don't have this kind of sudden flash memory of meeting Phil. He was there, and I was there, and we were all there, and there were lots of, we did a lot of things together. So I don't remember the moment that I met Phil, but I have really treasured every time I've been able to do something with him or collaborate with him in some way. And it's always been uh, really exciting. It's always kind of shaken up my own uh, way of, of thinking and working on things. Do you have a favorite? No. 
<laughs> it's like, you know, when you say, what's your favorite poem? You're like, right. uh, uh, it depends. There, there, there are one million favorite poems and one million favorite pieces of music because there are one million different times that you listen to them. And, and you each time with Phil's music, especially, I hear it in a different way. So it's really changing right in front of you. So I love that about his music, that it's so uh, changeable. He's collaborated with so many different people. I mean, the list is just uh, exhaustive. Um, Twyla Tharp, Allen Ginsberg, Godfrey Reggio, Martin Scorsese, Robbie Shankar, Doris Lessing, Leonard Cohen. That's probably the tip of the iceberg. And what is it about Philip Glass that makes him such a good collaborator? And what do you need to be a good collaborator like that? Incredible generosity. He's helped so many young musicians and older ones too. He's um, Phil loves people and respects them, so he, he'll listen to your ideas. And um, I, I once asked Phil how he deals with stress because you are always so calm. I, what, what is your secret for be, having this kind of equilibrium? I, I just have never seen anybody deal with stress this well. How do you do it? And he said, I acknowledge it. Hmm. And I thought, whoa, that's that's key, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of people just go, no, I'm not stressed out. I'm not stressed. You know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with it okay. And you know, and he just goes, yeah, I, this is really stressful. He, he's a very honest person, and he doesn't try to, you know, impress you with spiritual strength either. He's just like, well, you know, I, I have it, and I, there it is. And so I, I think in, in many ways, of course, that, that just the pure acknowledgement of that uh, really helps people deal with that. That's amazing, you know, but it makes so much sense to just acknowledge what's right in front of your face. Yeah, just uh, don't try to pretend it's not there. That will add another level of energy that you need to expend on it to keep it down. So you're going to be exhausted really quickly. So it's much better to just go, yep, <laughs> I really got it. And then just rest is one way to do it. Or do whatever it is that relieves stress for you. Maybe it's um, something else. Maybe it's having a candy bar or just, just you know, uh, listening to music or whatever, whatever helps you, 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 uh, you know, step away from it. So you're doing this show called uh, The Language of the Future, which explores links between the past and present and future. Where does Philip Glass fall in, in all of that? Oh, he falls everywhere. Um, so... One of the things that we've been doing is um, working with spoken word things from our friends. And so I joined him in that. And, and when we were working on that a couple of years ago, I think for a show in, in Italy, Phil said, um, what about Lou? Maybe." And Lou, by the way, is Lou Reed that we're talking about, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, Lou. So is there more than one Lou? Oh, I don't <laughs> think so. You know. um, maybe Lou has um, a spoken thing that we can play with. And I, I was like... I don't think I really want to do that. And he said, how about if we just try? I was like, wow, you're really pressing this. <laughs> and so I, he said, um, just see if you have it. And we were in the middle of rehearsal, and I said, and he said, go and see if you have Lou just talking by himself. Uh, go, <laughs> go, go have a look. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, and in that way, he reminded me of Lou, you know, because Lou 
didn't want to wait. He didn't want to do it tomorrow. He wanted to see if it were, if that's going to work. Let's just check it out now. So anyway, yeah, Lou wrote an incredible piece uh, with Bob Wilson, and it was a song called Junior Dad. It was part of it, and it's a really fierce song filled with pure anger, and it's not, it's not nice, you know. It's a, it's also a plea. So I was like, whoa, I don't know if we can play this, but we we tried it, and I was like. This is wonderful. I I get to play with Lou, and, and the recording is really beautiful. It's like he's here, and the first time we played it was in Ravello in Italy, and Lou's voice came sailing out of the speakers and out over the lake. The window broke the silence of the matches. The smoke effortlessly floating. And I was playing, and Phil was playing, and I, I almost just didn't want to look around because I, I felt, you know, right now Lou is really here. <laughs> Maybe if I look around, he won't be. But he, it was, it was so powerful, and I have Phil to thank for that. Just this idea of like, go way out there and just, just try that. At a benefit uh, in December, we, just after Leonard Cohen died, we added Democracy, a version of that, and that was a. Mm. Playing that with Philip was was really wonderful as well. Philip just seems to be filled with good ideas all the time. It's amazing. Yes, he does. He he's, yeah, he has great ideas. Laurie Anderson, thank you so much for taking some time to talk about Philip Glass with us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks. And you can read Laurie Anderson's essay about Philip Glass's Etude Number no. 10. And you can check out essays by Paul Simon, filmmaker Errol Morris, and composers David Lang and Nico Muley, all marking the 80th birthday of Philip Glass. They're all at our website, NPR Music. For All Songs Considered, I'm Tom Heisinga. If you liked this podcast, discover the rest of the NPR portfolio at npr.org slash podcasts and learn more about eight of the country's top 20 podcasts according to PodTrack's podcast metrics. That's npr.org slash podcasts.